Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbV company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Hi, my name is Zaina Almataseb, and I'm from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm really excited to host this first episode of BMC's Back to Practice series, where we'll explore topics surrounding patient care and practice management during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Rich Davidson, Dr. Jim Katz, and Dr. Julie Schallhorn. And we'll be focusing in this specific episode on current considerations and safety protocols. What's nice is that we have a variety of people who are academics, private practice, and in different regions of the country. And as we know, you know, being here in Houston, where we've had a, a resurgence in the number of um, COVID positive, you know, it really depends on where you're at. So if we can start us off, Rich, can you tell us about your practice, where you are, and also if you're back to pre-COVID, uh, both numbers of patient and staff, and then we want to do that for everyone else. Sure. I work at the University of Colorado Sioux Anschutz Rogers Eye Center here in Denver. We are one main eye center with uh, four satellites with five locations. We see about 130,000 patients a year. And we are just now back up to about 125% pre-COVID volume in the clinic, only about 60 to 70% volume in the OR. Okay, and what about you, Julie? I'm at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco, I think has an easier time of it than most places, fortunately. Um, you know, in terms of OR, we're, we have a full schedule in OR, you know, booked out till the end of August right now. Um, so we're really back up to uh, super normal uh, uh, volumes in our, in our operating rooms. Clinic, because of social distancing protocols, we're still a little bit delayed in recovery. I, I think uh, it, it depends on if you, you know, combining telehealth, because we've significantly expanded our telehealth program. So telehealth plus in-person, we're about up to 100%. In-person, we're running around 70%. Okay. And what about you, Jim? Uh, I'm Jim Katz. I work in the Chicago area. I'm in private practice. And in our practice in the area, we're back uh, about 75 to 80% in the office and similar in the, in the OR, varies day to day. But uh, getting back in, like Julie mentioned, because of the protocols we set, we're, we're a little slower to get back in the, in the office. Okay. And so what screening, Jim, do you do for these patients that you're seeing now? Tell us kind of, you know, what you, to make sure that this, you continue to stay safe. Sure. So the screening takes place really before the patient ever comes in. So we're doing as much of our work and our contact uh, as far as registration virtually as well as we can. And we're asking the the questions about exposure of, of COVID to each of the patients and then telling them that it's going to be different when they arrive, kind of reinforcing that's going to be a safe place when they, when they come to the office. And then when they come to the office, um, we're calling them in, in in a special order so we don't overwhelm the, the waiting room. But each patient gets questioned again whether they've had symptoms or exposures. And we do check temperatures of uh, each of the patients as well as the staff. When they come in, we do make them wash their hands or alcohol off their hands. And we really don't have that many in the uh, waiting room. So we kind of back them up into their cars and text them. I can kind of go through our protocol. How do we do that? Okay, great. No, I actually want to hear about how you tell them or how you ask them these questions beforehand. Is someone, do you have now someone in your practice that's just the person who calls all the patients before they come in or, you know, how do you logistically do that? 
we, we are contacting that contacting them ahead of time. We we do it virtually. We can send them something by text or email. Most of them, and of course, when we have them uh, reminded that they have our appointments, is when we go ahead and kind of go over those those typical questions of their exposure or symptoms they may have of of COVID directly. So yes, we have a staff member or staff members that do that because we don't even want them to show up to the office if they've had those already. Um, and Julie, in an academic center, it could be a little bit different in terms of kind of changing protocols. I, I would say you have to go through some bureaucracy. So what do you guys do for, for patients? That's very perceptive, Zaina. You know, the, 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 the amazing thing about COVID is I have seen UCSF move faster than I have ever seen things move here before in my entire life. So that is the one, uh, the one good thing. Um, and the, the whole medical center, you know, um, this is a problem to the, the entire center. So they've developed a lot of protocols that have been rolled out, you know, in, in, in all the clinics. Uh, so we have, um, you know, patients are screened within 24 hours of arrival. We have um, staff here who, because our, our clinic volumes are still a little bit below normal, um, just have dedicated job calling these patients, um, asking them screening questions. We've also recently rolled out through, we're on um, EPIC EHR, uh, a, a survey on EPIC that can be completed within 24 hours of arrival. That's the, the same questions. We have like this 14 point um, questionnaire going over like every single, you know, known COVID symptom, any exposure to anybody who's been diagnosed with COVID within the last 28 days. Um, now, um, you know, the travel questions have been changing now. We're asking about international travel. I expect soon we'll be, you know, change that again. Um, but this questionnaire, you know, it's it's been evolving, being updated, and it, and it actually has been quite um, quite effective in its implementation. All right. What about in Denver? Anything different? Yeah, I mean, similar. Um, I have to give our leadership team a huge shout out because they really were weeks ahead in getting us shut down and also starting us up, which has been amazing. And so at the very beginning, when we reactivated we were getting, uh, we had people doing live calls the night before doing all the COVID screening. And then as we started to increase our volume, that wasn't really feasible. So now they are greeted at the front uh, entrance. And if they don't have a mask, they're given a mask and then they're directed to different check-in stations. Once they check in on the first floor, they're then directed to their floor, whether it's the second or fourth floor for it to be seen. And their radio, someone radios up to someone on that floor who then meets them at the elevator and then takes them right into the exam room. If there isn't exam room space available, then they're, they're, in, they're in the waiting room and we have a whole protocol for making sure they only sit in a clean chair, meaning every chair is wiped down and they're not reused till they're wiped again. So it's actually, I've, I've got to give them a huge shout out. It's been very impressive to see how well it's gone and the patient satisfaction has been quite high. So, so, I mean, that's great. And I think, you know, there's, there's the issue, obviously there's limitations to how much the pre-screening is, can pick up positives, right? I mean, we have the asymptomatic patients and then we have the patients that won't necessarily answer the questions, you know, either they forgot or, you know, there's a reason that they aren't necessarily answering them. Has any of you had an experience where you found out later a patient was positive um, or something along the lines where there is, you know, COVID positive family member of a patient? What, what do you do then? I did, I, right when this started, when the COVID stuff kind of launched, I found out uh, about 12 days after I had seen three patients that three were positive. And so I already gone 12 days. I was fine. I quarantined myself for a few extra days and that was it. But since we reactivated, I've not found out after the fact that, that someone was positive. I don't know about you guys. Anything I, 
I haven't had that experience yet. And we treat every patient for the reason you said, almost like they are positive anyways, with the, with the PPE that we, we wear, the staff as well as myself, because even if they're negative on the tests, and I don't forget to get into that, how accurate the tests even are and how you mentioned they could be asymptomatic anyways. So we kind of treat them as if they could be contagious anyways, each patient. Are you guys all wearing N95s in clinic or are you wearing just a regular mask in clinic? Yeah, and that's, that's actually, tell us what you're wearing kind of every day. <laughs> Um, so I, I do choose to wear an N95, and again, uh, and not all the staff does. So what's interesting, is, and I don't know if this is different in private practice and academics, but I think it's really critical to let the patients be aware and let the staff be aware that it's a safe place to for us practice and a safe place for them to visit. So we want that perception that they really should be comfortable coming in, and as well as with the staff. So we allow our staffs to wear N95s, we have KN95s, we have regular surgical masks, and we tell all our staff they can wear gloves and the uh, safety goggles or eye protection from the front staff all the way to the back. I choose to wear an N95, it is more difficult to breathe through, but I like that perceived um, protection for me. But I like the idea that the staff feels comfortable with what they're wearing, so they're not pushed to wear anything they feel uncomfortable with, but they're, they're offered. We don't say I have it, but it's not for the rest of the clinical staff to wear those kind of things. So I wear an N95. I um, choose to also wear gloves mainly so I can just wash and around the gloves and things like that. I don't think the gloves certainly do anything for me in particular. The staff doesn't. Um, I, I do have problems with eye protection. We do have screens around all our uh, protection around all the slit lamps. I have difficulty with wearing eye protection with the steaming up and getting close to the, um, the uh, ocular. So again, we do have the eye shields around and they're allowed to wear others if they want to wear. And do you, do you wear a different N95 mask every day? Do you switch out? How many masks do you have? Because the issue is obviously getting access to these too. I, uh, I, they're really difficult to get the N95s. We finally had a source. So I have, uh, I have five and I rotate them and keep them in a, a just a paper bag and let them air out. So I'm not wearing any one, any, you know, they, they remain non-worn for at least probably three to four days. I have one for each basically day of the week. And so I have five. And, and once I wear those, it's five times I re we replace those. And what do you do, Julie? What do you wear in, in clinic? So, you know, right, you know, the, the medical center, since being at a large medical center, um, you know, does not classify our encounters and outpatient as high risk. Um, so they have not provided N95s to the, the eye clinic and to pretty much all of their eye clinics. So I'm not, I'm not wearing an N95. I'm wearing a regular surgical mask. Um, and, um, you know, all of our staff are just wearing regular surgical masks. We are, you know, we do have patients universally masked here. As soon as they come in, they are also wearing masks. So everybody's universally masked. Um, pretty much, you know, a large part of our strategy around these interactions has been limiting face-to-face -face time with patients. Um, so we've really moved a lot, especially with new patients, um, patients that require a longer conversation, um, new cataract evals, really any, most, almost all new patients, we've moved the consultation for that to virtual. So patients are coming in, they're getting their testing, they're getting a quick exam, and then, um, and then we're doing the bulk of our, our um, consultation uh, via a telehealth call. And how does that work in, in terms of, um, you know, billing? So are you billing for the visit you know, when they initially visit and then you're just sort of doing that telehealth call as a follow-up? 
Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm doing currently, you know, cause it's, you're, you can't double bill within seven days. So if, if we were to move that telehealth call uh, farther out, then you could, you could uh, bill for them both. But currently I'm seeing new patients on Mondays and then doing telehealth visits on Wednesdays okay. um, as a follow-up. I honestly think it kind of though saves me time overall because I feel like patients, by the time they're in a telehealth call, they understand they have this allotted time slot and they're, mm -hmm you know, much, um, you know, more understanding of like, oh, this is your time. I see on my computer clock now that it's, you know, 5.13 and we're scheduled from 5 to 5.15. So I will stop asking you questions versus, you know, an inpatient clinic experience. They've been waiting for a long time. They just want to talk forever. Yeah. So in, in some ways, I, I do think it's a little bit um, uh, more, um, there's more uh, mutual respect of time. Well, I think what's interesting is there's definitely been a change in the way clinic flows, right? Um, I mean, it's interesting, Rich, that you said you're back to 125%. You know, some, some, you know, sort of what Julie had said earlier is that the whole social distancing, the extra steps, maybe the cleaning and, and all of these things could, you know, slow down uh, a clinic in a way. So I'd love to hear, Rich, why don't you start us off in terms of how this clinic flow works for you and how you make it, you know, optimize it the most while I think patient safety and your safety is obviously the most important things too. For sure. I mean, I think we've been very fortunate and, and like I said, our team has really come together nicely to, to plan this. And part of the way this is working is that centralizing the check-in has really helped us a lot. You know, we used to check in on three different floors depending on where the patient was going. And now we've been able to check in with fewer staff by, by staggering these appointments. And that's freed up other staff to like staff the waiting room to make sure the waiting rooms aren't, aren't um, taken up. And we've also had other people to help clean the room so that the tech doesn't have to clean the room after every patient. And so all of these things have helped with workflow. And that doesn't mean we don't get behind because we do. There are some clinics that it definitely slows down or you know, if we have an abundance of providers on one specific time, we're still trying to work through those kinks. But, but the amazing thing is we are at 125% and we've been able to do it with fewer staff. I think we have something like 18 or 19 fewer staff members right now because some have resigned and chose chose not to come back. We did not let anyone go, but many people decided ah they're nervous about coming back or they want to do something else. So, so they did. So it's been, in, I hate to use the word blessing because this has been crazy, but in some ways it's really forced us to rethink how we do things and has made us right. more efficient. Right. <laughs> That's interesting because in private practice and and I think your system was quite efficient already, Rich. Yet in private practice, we try to pride ourselves on efficiency to begin with. So for us to come back and be more efficient is quite difficult. And to your point, that's probably one of the reasons we're, whatever I said, it's probably 75, 80% is because to get back up at that level that we're at is more difficult from where we started. No, that's a very good point. Well, that's the other thing too about patients, you know, the whole waiting room too, right? In terms of putting the chairs in a position where it's, you know, farther than six feet. Do you guys still allow uh, visitors to come or are your patients the only people that come up except in certain uh, instances? Julie? Yeah, we, we had um, up until very recently, we were allowing no visitors unless it was a, you know, a child, in which case you got one or somebody who, you know, was conservative developmentally delayed. Um, we recently just last week changed that policy. So now patients can have a family member uh, accompany them if they choose only one, uh, two are not allowed. So um, that, that, has, that has been a change in the past week. Um, the universal masking, they, they also get screened and universally masked um, 
but that, that is currently where we are at. And are, are the other family members kind of waiting in the car? You text them. Is there a process for letting people know? Um, uh, the, uh, you mean the second, the first family member or the other family members? The other family members or, you know, before when you didn't have kind of the visitor? Oh, yeah, they were, they were waiting in the car or outside. They were not allowed to wait in the building. What about, what about you, Rich? Yeah, so we've also relaxed and allowed, you know, up to one family member if necessary. We've kind of you know, not encouraged it, but if someone wants to, it's okay. And it's helped in certain situations when you have a difficult patient that needs some significant surgical counseling, things like that. It's, it's been helpful to have them there. Um, for the ORs, not yet. Uh, you know, the patient gets dropped off and is pretty much in pre-op by themselves unless there's an extenuating circumstances or if it's a child. Um, and we've also done check out in the exam room. So we have um, our our checkout people who have mobile computers, they wheel it into the room, check the patient out, then the patient texts the valet and the car is waiting for them when they get out. So it's actually really sped things up quite a bit from a checkout process too. Anything you do differently, Jim? Well, we do not allow someone else to come in the rooms now unless they're, they're really in need or language barrier or something. But we have come up with a concept where the patients that come in, we almost have it, uh, like a baseball where one person's on deck, one's in the hole. So we keep moving them forward. So there's only one person to two in the, in the waiting room per doctor. And then the next person gets called up from their car, they're texted up and the next one. So we keep this kind of flow going, but we don't allow other uh, members of the, the family otherwise to come in and they are all masked. Everyone is masked and we actually tape the mask up if, if it's coming off because they're all over the place, the type of masks patients will come in with. Well, and, and you notice some patients too, or people in general, anywhere you go, you know, the mask is kind of below the nose, which, you know, defeat, defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> so those are kind of awkward conversations. And is that your check-in desk person? Or have you had an a, a experience with a patient where it was this, you know, hey, I don't believe I should be wearing this mask right now? <laughs> that I fortunately have not had, it, well, it has nothing to do with Chicago area, but I've not had. Um, some of the patients, depending on their state of mind or their level of concern, just either don't pay attention and you could tell them three, four times to pull up their mask. They want you walk in the room and they'll pull it down to show you their face. So a lot of patients don't get it. So I remind them all the time above the nose. And I remind them kind of like I think Julie mentioned, don't talk when we are up at the slit lamp and they'll say, you get some, they'll say, okay, I won't talk. You say, no, no, no words, nothing. Okay, I won't say anything. So that kind of thing. So um, it takes a little time to learn that. If they just start talking again or telling me their history, I'll move back. So when I'm, I'm taking their history, I'm five, six feet away, and I only roll up to them when I examine them. And once in a while, I'll push back if they keep talking, and I'll, I'll let them tell me more history, and I'll go up again. So every patient's so different on their level of understanding. Julia, Rich, any other patient kind of experiences that you've had, either positive or negative, kind of because I mean, I think I think most patients have been very positive and very understanding, and you know, I think Colorado as a state's been very positive and very understanding. But um, so no, no one really combative at the very beginning when this launched, and we had to reschedule thousands of patients. Our call center was telling us there were definitely patients who were angry, who thought it was a fluke, who thought it was a hoax and did not want to reschedule. And people, we did get some people come in very early on that you know, we were only seeing emergent patients who really did not need to be seen. And I actually got a little frustrated with them uh, because I felt like they were kind of abusing the system. But since we reactivated, 
patients have been very understanding. Um, obviously, we've seen the mistakes with the mask. I don't think it was intentional, but they just don't know how to wear a mask. But I do exactly what Jim does. As soon as I'm done examining them, I back up to the corner of the room. I'm at least five or six feet away, and we have the discussion from there. Julie, any, any, any specific experiences that stands out to you? The only time that I have gotten any sort of like pushback, um, you know, I've, there's several people that, you know, think they don't have to wear the mask when you're in the room with them. And I just say, hey, would you mind putting your mask on? You know, all got to be safe. Uh, some, some people, you know, we, we've been COVID testing everybody within uh, four days of surgery. And um, we've gotten some pushback on people getting COVID tested because they are like, I don't want to have that thing shoved in my nose. Why do I have to go down to San Francisco early? I hate driving in the city. You know, you got the, the litany, of, litany of, of small complaints. Um, but no, nobody, nobody has, has, you know, everybody, once you explain it, they're like, okay, they calm down and, and, and they've been, you know, they've gone along with it. Are, are, are you guys getting tested at all? I mean, Baylor has said, for example, all ophthalmologists need to be tested. So all of us got tested. How before often, I, Dana? Yeah, before I delivered my baby, I got tested. So I've, I've gotten tested twice. It is not a fun test for sure, but of course, you know, safety is important. What, what are your practices doing? I've not been tested. I was antibody tested because I just was curious to see if I'd ever been exposed. It was negative, whatever that means. Um, but I've not been tested. Obviously, if I came up with any symptoms, I would definitely test myself right away. Um, and like Julie said, we've had a little pushback with the COVID testing for the OR, but you know they understand that you know if they want surgery, they have to do it. The real pushback is when we do one eye and then the other eye is one to two weeks later, and they have to come back. It's, it, isn't, it isn't the first test, it's the second test that they're really pushing back on. So. Exactly, you know what to expect. It, it's definitely a lot worse the second time around. <laughs> um, we, we haven't been COVID tested, but you, we're starting a kind of a random sample, UCSF starting a, a study basically that's gonna randomly survey um, certain medical providers you know, every two weeks or so for the next foreseeable future. Um, and they're, they're in the process of selecting who they're going to do that on right now, yeah. just as a surveillance method. No, and, and we obviously all wish that the antibody tests were better in the sense that, hey, they could tell us something is in, we won't get reinfected or, you know, this is, this is helpful, but unfortunately it's not there. And then, you know, the false positivity too um, is obviously not that great. What about your staff? So, you know, there's a significant amount of changes with how clinic flows now. And also in terms of your staff, are you screening them? Um, again, it's hard to really tell who is interacting with who. Um, you know, Jim, you wanna start us off? Sure. So we are screening our staff pretty much the same way we screen the, our patients. The staff knows the drill with the questions, so we kind of ask them any of the questions we positive. We do take temperatures each day. I, I don't know how high yield these things are, but if they do have symptoms, uh, we would be quite concerned about that. And I think that's probably going to be as or more likely than with the patients admitting it, maybe, maybe not. But again, that's another reason we have them wear the PPE for every patient before and after they would be exposed. So they answer the question, yes, we do um, screen the pay our staff also every day. Rich? Yeah, so we are supposed to self-screen. Uh, we have an app um, for the health system and we're supposed to go on every day answer the COVID questions and take our own temperature and document that. I do not have any data as to how many people are doing it or doing it accurately. Um, but obviously the key message is really to make people aware, especially the staff, that if there's any concern that they get tested. And also we wanted to just, they were as afraid as, as patients were when this first reactivation started, meaning 
We had some techs nervous about doing refractions. They're like, well, I don't want to be this close to the patient. So we really had to kind of figure out ways to, to calm their nerves too and really stress their safety because we want them to come to work feeling like they're safe as well. And Julie, anybody has had a positive staff member? We have. Yeah, we have. And can you tell us what you did, right, in terms of after that fact? Um, you know, they stay home for however long, and then what do you do with all of their, you know, people that they've interacted with? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. Um, the, the, the positive staff member that we had came at a time when the medical center um, was not mandating um, a quarantine with exposure. So, um, you know, all the people that were exposed, and this is the same thing with exposure to a, a patient. Um, the people that are exposed um, are notified, they're asked to take their temperature um, twice per day. If they come down with any symptoms, then obviously they're, they're tested and they're quarantined, but they are allowed um, back into the, the pool to see patients. Um, if the exposure is deemed very high risk, um, if it's like an aerosol generating procedure, um, or if you're around the patient without any protective equipment, including just like a surgical mask, then um, then the current guidelines are that you will get quarantined. And what about you, Rich, with your positive patient? Yeah, we had two or three technicians turn up positive, or they weren't necessarily technicians. Some of them were other workers at the eye center. Um, they were quarantined for two weeks. Um, and luckily we did not hear of any other cases. We kept their their case confidential. We did not uh, tell anyone, but we did make people aware that that you know, obviously if they have symptoms for any reason to let us know. And and even today, uh, this past week, I had a, a faculty member um, who was being tested and luckily is negative. But um, but for the people that did turn up positive, we just quarantined them for two weeks, and they all did quite well. And thankfully, we don't know of them spreading to anyone else that we're aware of. Mm -hmm. So, so let's shift a little bit in terms of gears from clinic to the OR. What, what are you guys doing differently in the OR? You know, luckily, obviously gloves and gowns and, and masks um, are, are something from before COVID, but what is different in terms of your flow? Jim, you want to start us off? Sure. So we do a few things different. This is really based on uh, some studies that I looked into because we really don't know if this is an aerosolizing generating procedure, the phaco emulsification itself, you could probably always remember at times phacoing and just seeing a little stream uh, aerosol coming up, but maybe if the wound's small enough, it won't. And then we also don't know what the viral load is. So we have no idea if it's critical or not. A lot of us think that it is not even close to being critical, but we don't really know. So I do three or four things um, that I pay attention to. Now, one is povidone iodine, because if there, it, it is viral load in the conge, in theory, it will reduce that. I was already doing, placing povidone iodine in the, in the conjunctiva before the surgery. The second is uh, one study showed that if the incision size was smaller, and it looked at a 2.75 and a 2.2 incision, and the 2.2 millimeter incision was much uh, less aerosolization by video, by high-speed uh, videography against a dark background. This is really what the test was. And it showed that smaller incision was a little tighter, it was better, and it didn't seem to have any aerosolization. Um, and then the third is when you go in, if you think about it, if there's viral load in the eye, in the aqueous, when we clear the aqueous with the irrigation aspiration handpiece, we should re be reducing the viral load. So by the size and volume and turnover of the AC, the study showed that if you're in there for at least five, six seconds doing the IA, 
uh, portion of the phaco. So you clear out the, some viscoelastic before you hit the phaco for six seconds. The viral load should be turned over with the BSS. So that lowers the, the amount. And the fourth was if you place a little um, viscoelastic on the incision between the phaco and where the incision is, the aerosolation went apparently down to zero. So that held for approximately one minute. So if you replace that every minute, those are kind of four things you can do to reduce the aerosolization of the phaco itself. You obviously want the patient to be breathing away from you or filter that. And there was a video that became viral going around some, some of those discussions mm. uh, in terms of surgery. So I thought that was very interesting, actually. Julie, Julie, anything you do differently in the OR? Um, you know, we're getting everybody COVID tested um, before they come to the OR. So that's probably the, you know, the best thing that we can do to know that they're truly COVID negative. Um, at some level, it actually you know, it seems unfair that we're not COVID testing ourselves before we're going to the OR. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so we feel pretty comfortable. We haven't really changed too much other, um, you know, that and, and, and like Rich said, we're not letting anybody accompany people to the surgery right. center. The patients are coming by themselves and they're, they're leaving by themselves. Um, besides that, we really have not changed too much of our, um, of our operating room flow. What, what about you, Rich? Yeah, I mean, similar things. 150% of volume. No, <laughs> no that, that's actually, yeah, we actually do still have a little bit of a backlog. I have some patients that are still waiting to come in. I've got probably about 25 patients who said, you know what, I'm fine. My cataract's not that bad. I'll wait. Um, but we've slowed down the process in pre-op and in PACU. And I think a lot of that is for the nurses to feel comfortable because it can get pretty crazy. We have eight pre-op bays and uh, four post-op bays basically. And so, you know, it, we can have three surgeons at one time operating that can be really busy and hectic for them. And we want them to feel like they're safe. So we're only running two rooms right now and we're doing it more slowly. So for example, tomorrow I have 10 cases and that's gonna unfortunately take till probably two in the afternoon, you know, because we're doing, you know, one case every probably 40 minutes, 45 minutes, even though the operating time is 10 minutes. You know, so it's that's really slowed down. Um, we're using every other bay in pre-op. And so really spacing out the patients in pre-op. So, cause they can be in pre-op for an hour and a half. So we want them to feel like they're safe. They're wearing masks in pre-op and really trying to distance ourselves when we're counseling the patient in pre-op as well. Unless we have to mark the patient, we're kind of standing towards the back of the bay away from their face. Um, but it's really as much for the staff feeling safe as it is for the, for the um, patients. Are, is anybody still flipping rooms um, in terms of the, the, you know, during surgery? You mean two rooms? Yeah, just still going with two rooms and operating, no issues with that? We're only, I'm, we're only using one room at a time for surgery, yeah. unfortunately, yes. So we've not yeah. done that yet. Have you guys? I, I'm, I'm operating at two rooms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we no, no issues with that and keeping up with the volume and things like that. Okay. No. Okay, great. Um, and then tell us, so do either of you have the, either the um, Artevo or the Ingenuity in terms of kind of 3D display? Um, it'd be a kind of great time in terms of the whole concept of safety and, um, you know, potentially not having everyone right in the face of the patient. So this is, you know, we talk about it both in an academic teaching hospital perspective, um, but also it's nice to hear, you know, this is a benefit we hadn't thought about, you know, pre-COVID, for example. We, I, I, I do. I operate heads up routinely and we've trialed the Artivo system, which is a, a Zeiss unit, a 3D heads up system. 
and I routinely use the uh, Alcon Ingenuity system. That's the one we currently have. And that's, that's what I operate off of. That's what I use. It's normal for me to use at all cases. And, and you're right, there are some differences. I'm used to those, but I'm probably 10, 12 inches away when I would have used the oculars from the patient to where my mouth is. And I'm almost double the distance away when I operate using a 3D heads up system. So I feel that um, that probably is a safety measure in itself. There are a lot of advantages in my opinion to that type of system and the ergonomics are wonderful and those kind of things. But as far as safety, I think being further away, probably reduce each you know, few inches you're away, it probably cuts it down a quarter. You know, it probably doesn't just cut it down halfway when you double your distance. So I think that's a huge safety margin in addition to the other things I talked about if aerosolization is, is an issue. And certainly them breathing and the exhalation get somewhat in the room too. Yeah, it's, it's hard to decide, right? When we don't have as much research or data to see what is, you know, is it makes us feel better or um, is it truly making, um, you know, a difference? And, and I'd love to hear also, you know, Julie and Rich, have you decreased the number of learners, for example, in the room? Um, first, number one, because of PPEs or potentially to decrease their risk, you know, whether it's residents or fellows, and again, maybe bring back this whole concept of 3D um, with that potentially heads up display help uh, to keep those learners in there. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we would love the, you know, we, we trialed the Artivo. We actually had just put in the, the purchase contract when COVID started. Uh, this has been installed by that, um, but we love it for teaching. Um, you know, it's nice to give all the learners in a room, you know, usually you can only have one uh, with that 3D view at the scope, you can have multiple with the heads up display. Um, we haven't decreased, we, we for for a lot, for the, the, the majority of the, the COVID time, we did not have our medical students um, in the OR with us or in clinic. Um, we have restarted that over the past couple of weeks. I had a medical student with me in clinic all day today and they're welcome back in the operating room. I'd say the only change is that, you know, we don't have our, our foreign fellows coming into um, into the OR with us, but pretty mm -hmm. much we're back up to the normal level of of, of, of trainees in the operating room. Mm -hmm. What about you, Rich? Yeah, and uh, you know, Jim's used the heads up longer than anyone I know, so he's really the master of this. But I'm a huge fan. We have not purchased one yet. We were also in the process process. I've used them both. We were evaluating them and, and working out what we were going to do as COVID hit. Um, but I, I think, aside from everything else that's been mentioned about the ergonomics there's no doubt that it's, I think it is safer in this situation. You're farther away. It allows you to wear a face shield. If you choose to wear a face shield, you definitely can't wear a face shield when you're trying to look through oculars. So from a safety perspective, I think it's great. Um, we've just started to open up to med students again. So that's going to, that's going to happen now. We were shut down to med students, but we didn't shut down to residents or fellows, but we are also shut down to industry reps, which has been actually a little bit of a problem because we have some new technology we're trying to implement and in-service our nurses, in-service our docs, and we've had to put that on hold. This is equipment we've already purchased that we have to hold off for three, four, five months. So it's been a little frustrating. Obviously, we know that we had to do it, but I hope very shortly we'll allow reps back in the OR with us because they are helpful in, in situations. Yeah, so the, uh, that was gonna be actually another, it's a really important point, right? Reps in terms of in clinic, both for drops and technologies and, and in the OR. Um, are you guys a lot, Jim and Julie, are you guys allowing the reps in the OR? And if so, are there creative ways to still um, have that connection with reps? 
um, you know, again, are you doing things virtually in terms of education or um, that connection? And what about samples? So there's just so much that, you know, we took for granted that that human to human contact that is just getting to the base. I mean, that's what all our relationships in ophthalmology are are based on. So, you know, I would love to hear kind of what you yeah. guys do. They, they certainly were that way in the past. And I think they will be that way again in, in our practice. Um, we really haven't had many, many reps in. And I have to say, once in a great while, it's kind of nice not having to have them in there because we're busy. And a lot of reps show up unannounced and you know, on their terms. So it almost, in a way, at least in private practice, makes it easier to say no. Uh, we do arrange and give times much more often than we did in the past. Sometimes we'll do it virtually by a video call, those kind of things. If it's more surgical or more technique, like Rich was saying, we need those people around or at least to communicate with. And if it's in surgery, it's hard to do that before or after the procedure. So that has been a little lacking and a little frustrating for us and for them. The ones in the office have worked out smoother because we can still meet with them alone or I'll have my head tech meet with them or like I said, a video conference, something like that. Mm -hmm. Julie, anything? You know, we have, we've always been on an appointment system for reps. They, they, they can't just show up unannounced at the medical center. So that continues. Um, really, we just have to justify um, whether or not they need to be there. So if, if it's for training reasons, yes, they can totally be here. Um, if they just want to come by and drop off some literature, then, you know, the answer is probably no. Um, we have been interacting with them somewhat virtually, but, um, you know, generally more restrictive than previously, but not totally shut down. Okay. And anything, any pearls to industry in terms of how to reach out, how, uh, you know, all three of you are KOLs, obviously, and, you know, consultants to different uh, groups, just, you know, I think they're also trying to figure out the new norm and what's allowed and what's not. So any, any pearls to them in terms of how to still keep that connection, uh, but at the same time, you know, be careful in terms of the uh, safety. I would just say, first of all, I would, I would say I thank them because I think they've been very patient. I'm sure it's been very frustrating yeah. for them too. And it's been nice to have the connection. They've, they've sponsored, as you know, a lot of webinars and things like that. I think that's been a great way for all of us to kind of stay in touch. I'm actually in a Peloton group where we Peloton and there's a bunch of industry people there and that's been nice. And I think everyone's kind of just you know, trying to be supportive of each other, knowing that we're all in this, in this together and we want them to succeed as much as they want us to succeed. And I think that's been very helpful and I hope that we can continue to have, you know, since we don't have any in, live in-person meetings that we'll continue to socialize virtually over the next few months until we can start to get together again. Who knew we would all be Zooming so much just, just about <laughs> six months ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I agree with Rich. So the same way, I think it's really important to keep those connections with industry and uh, at a social level, as well as I think there's great opportunities in medicine that we never thought about before. And industry is very interested in how things are changing. So they do want to hear, not just from us as KOLs, but from doctors with ideas or what is lacking now that we never would have talked about before, or certainly wasn't interesting to us. It was put on the back burner that some of these companies have been working on that are coming to the forefront now because they're of uh, the need really. And so I think companies are becoming more nimble and changing as we give them suggestions. So I think that's important to keep up. Yeah, and I think also, um, you know, they, they've really been concentrating on the educational aspects. And, you know, they're just, um, 
it's really been great seeing, you know, much, for example, not as much advertising, more webinars that are educational in terms of the timing and also shifting um, in the COVID era, how to do these things. So I think I, I agree. It really has um, shown, you know, the best of both industry, both ophthalmologists and, and people in general. So we're always trying to find, you know, something positive from this really pretty horrific situation financially, you know, patient safety, you know, just human interaction psychologically. So, so I think that's uh, definitely one thing. And, you know, we're going to wrap it up pretty soon, but if there's, I would say, you know, two pearls you would tell uh, people in terms of their practices, both in, whether it's in clinic or surgery, that you think not only during COVID, but it's something that you've felt that has made things more efficient that you think this is how it's going to be sort of in the future from your experience that would be great maybe rich you can start us off what you've changed yeah. and something that you feel that is probably going to last even after covid it's funny you know i think the biggest change is you know getting the patients directly into the exam rooms and that has also gone with extremely high patient satisfaction they you know i have received so many compliments about how safe they feel. And that actually makes me feel really good. The fact that there is a certain amount of anxiety coming to a medical center and the fact that we exceeded their expectations. I have one patient just uh, three days ago, four days ago, she works at another hospital as an interpreter. She's pregnant, seven months, and she quit her job because four people in her unit were, were COVID positive. They were not taking the measures that we were taking to make people feel safe. And she was worried for herself, rightly so. Um, and so I was really proud of the fact that she came in and said, you know, I'm blown away by the safety measures. And I think we were always great at cleanliness and wiping things down. But I think the fact that, you know, it's going to be a new standard that we have to convey to patients that this is safe to come in. You're still going to great, get great care and don't delay your care because you're worried about getting COVID at the medical center. I think those are things that are going to stay and that we're going to have to continue to maintain. Oh, that's, that's really great, great advice, Jim. Uh, to kind of echo what, what Rich said, I think that safety perspective to the patients really makes them feel good and comfortable. So the perception to them that they can come in, I have so many patients, elderly mainly patients, that have come in and they tell me I have not been out, I've not been to the grocery store in months. They know the exact date the last time they were out of the house and they say this is the first time that I've seen anyone in a doctor. And they feel great about it, not just because they can talk to someone, but rather they feel comfortable in that in that setting. So we made it a real safe place. Uh, very few people in the waiting room. We also, like Rich, keep the per patient in the room once they go in the room. We don't switch around. We try to decrease the touch points for when a patient can kind of transmit and vice versa. And then second is with the staff, the same thing. It's critical, in my opinion, that we make the staff feel comfortable being in the office they have families, they're in healthcare profession. They think they may take it home to, to others and that we don't want them perceive that way. So again, having the PPE in place so they feel comfortable with it, it kind of works out for everyone and, and more people are probably in a good mood and a good place now than they were, were half a year ago with some of these things we're doing. Mm -hmm. Anything to add, Julie? I, you know, the only thing that I think we've really changed that I think we're going to be continuing to do is, you know, adding a telehealth component in. We've just had such a great reception of patients to be able to talk to the doctor from their home. You know, we can't obviously do a great exam, but, um, you know, our patients have universally loved it. So I think we're going to continue doing that well into the future. 
Well, and, and another right. episode in this series will really talk into the details of that because I do think it is it is important. I really want to thank you guys, um, such phenomenal panelists. Uh, I got a lot of ideas coming back from maternity leave too. So thank you for sharing. You know, it's it's um, one amazing thing is just how it's brought everybody together and everybody's really helping, you know, whether it's to, hey, I figured this out, let me add or let me share is, is really phenomenal. And I want to thank the BMC team for having this. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbV company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.